This is James Schofield, the creator of the stories in Behind the Bottom Line. These were all short stories which were published in different magazines and all about the weird and wonderful people we meet at work. I'm in the middle of creating season eight at the moment, which will be starting at the end of September. But I thought people might like to have some special bonus episodes of Behind the Bottom Line for when they're on holiday. So what I've done is to take four of the best stories from seasons one to seven, and I've reworked them into a completely different format, which I think you're going to like. In today's episode, I've got two stories about people with a past, the debt and another death in Venice. So sit back and enjoy. The debt. It was the shape of his nose that I first recognised. I hadn't seen Jimmy King for 40 years, but that nose, created through the coming together of Jimmy's face and the head of some Sunderland defender in the last minutes of extra time of a League Cup semi-final match, was unmistakable. I spotted him while chatting with some elderly ladies, friends of my mother-in-law, in an old people's home. My mother-in-law had died a couple of weeks earlier, and I was visiting the home for the last time to collect her things and pay some bills. Because my face is familiar to many people, I'm a newsreader on the television, the head of the home, Mrs Marsden, asked if I would have tea with her friends. She said they would like it. So I agreed. The home had two pleasant social rooms connected by a door where the residents could be together. We were sitting at a table in the larger room while in the other one a television was showing football and a few elderly men were sleepily watching from their armchairs. I could hear the commentators' voices in the background, rising and falling as the ball travelled here and there. Will you turn the bloody tally up? A voice suddenly roared. I can't hear a thing they're saying. Where's the remote? My tea companions clucked like startled chickens at this interruption, and through the door I could see the elderly men were also resentful of this newcomer disturbing their peaceful afternoon. He was wearing a rather dirty old dressing gown and walking slowly and painfully, using a stick. One side of his body seemed very stiff, and I guessed he must have had a stroke. Except for his nose, 
He was no longer the athlete I had worshipped as a child. Who's that gentleman? I asked one of the ladies, wanting to be sure I was right. I haven't seen him here before. Oh, that's Mr. King. He's new. We don't like him at all. He shouts rude things at the television when the football is on. We had to complain to Mrs. Marsden about it. Oh, Jimmy, I thought. Why did this have to happen? I was the only girl in our family. From the time I was very little, my brothers always took me to watch our local football team, Trent United. When I started, we were in the third division. But when this story takes place, I was 16, and we'd just been promoted to the first division, as it was then called. We went to every game, home or away, and most of the family conversation revolved around the team. I was as keen as my brothers, but in 1967, when Jimmy King joined the club, I became obsessed. He came with a reputation. So-called experts would shake their heads wisely and say things like, mm, nice footwork, but that's not what it's all about, is it? He doesn't play for the team, does he? And there were the scandals. The Jaguar he crashed after a night out in London, the models he dated, the parties the police had to break up. But I didn't care. What he did on the pitch was art, and somehow he turned our team, made up of solid but fairly ordinary professionals, into something special. 67 to 68 was a magical season. With Jimmy there, everybody feared us, even the big clubs like Leeds, Liverpool or the Manchesters. My family was in delirium, and after the games we'd get the players to sign programmes or photographs. But there was one player I could never speak to, even though I always carried his picture with me. And that was Jimmy. You see... Though I was used to young men because of my brothers, I couldn't talk or even go near Jimmy. If he looked in my direction, I would tremble and turn away. Instead, I wrote articles about his football for a school magazine. Then a teacher showed them to the editor of a local newspaper, and he asked me for match reports from the point of view of a fan. Five shillings an article, which was good money for our family. But more importantly for me, it meant I could write about Jimmy, and I poured my heart into everything I wrote about him. One day, I was dropping off my article at the newspaper when the regular sports journalist shouted out to me, Heard about Jimmy? One of them Italian clubs wants him next season. I'm going down to the club now for the official announcement. Oh, it was hard. I couldn't let anyone know my heart was breaking, though it was. That night, and many nights afterwards, 
I cried myself to sleep. I didn't want to write anymore, but the editor wouldn't stop asking me, and eventually I started again, which was how my career as a journalist began. Later, I went into television and finally ended up as the anchor for the main news programme on the BBC, and I owed it all to Jimmy. I looked at him secretly as the conversation went on around me. It hadn't worked for him in Italy. He'd had a bad injury in his first game and never really recovered. Soon he started drinking and causing trouble and no club would take him. And now he sat in an old people's home where nobody knew anything about the genius he'd once been. Sick, old and waiting to die. But perhaps, I thought, there was still a small thing I could do for him. I stood up and walked over to his chair. Mr King, I asked. Jimmy King of Trench United in 1967? Would you... Would you do me the honour of signing this photograph I have of you from those days? I opened my handbag and handed over the picture I'd carried all those years. It was quite battered, even though I'd looked after it carefully. Everybody, including Jimmy, looked at me in amazement. And then I sat down and we talked about the old days while I listened. The time the crowd at Manchester United stood and clapped him off the pitch at the end of a game. The goal he'd scored against the great Tottenham team of 67 which had won the FA Cup. The match at West Ham when Bobby Moore asked for his shirt at the final whistle. Thank you said Mrs. Marsden when I finally left. You made Jimmy very happy. Nobody would have believed him if he'd told those stories himself. It'll be much easier for him now. I drove home. Everything settled? My husband asked me. Yes, I said. All debts paid. Another Death in Venice That March in 1948 
It rained nearly every day in Venice. But we still went to the British Consul's tea party on Sunday, together with most of the other English residents in the city. We were in Venice because my husband, Reginald, was doing research in the city archives. We had rooms in a villa on the Venice Lido because the sea air was healthier for our son Davy than in Venice itself. Each morning, Reginald took the Vaporetto to the archives and I did my best in the local food shops before walking with Davy along a cold, wet beach. Everything was foreign to me and I was lonely, so the Sunday tea party became the highlight of my week. Apart from the consul and his wife, the English vicar was usually there, some artists, a few older people who had left England many years earlier, and the occasional businessman. It was here that I met Miss Winterley. Mrs. Hunt, would your little boy like a biscuit? She asked the first time we met, a few weeks after we moved from Oxford to Venice. I saved one for him when the consul told me you were coming today. I'm afraid there weren't very many. Davy did want the biscuit and sat next to her. I watched them chatting cheerfully while a visiting insurance salesman from London insisted that the Labour government in Britain was full of communist spies. Davy and Miss Winterley came to my rescue. Mummy, he interrupted, pulling Miss Winterley along by the hand. This nice lady lives at the Lido too. Let's take her to the seaside tomorrow. After the tea party, we travelled back on the Vaporetto to the Lido together and she showed me the house where she lived, just around the corner from our rooms. Villa Tesoro, I said. What a lovely name. It is, isn't it? She answered. Well, see you tomorrow. After I had put David to bed, Reginald closed his book and lit his pipe. Sad story behind Davy's new lady friend, he said. The consul told me something earlier. Really? She was an English nanny for the younger children of a rich family in Turin before the First War. The eldest son of the house fell in love with her and she with him, but he was already married and couldn't get divorced. So he left his wife and moved with Miss Winterley to Venice, where he bought the Villa Tesoro. Goodness! It was a huge scandal, of course. During the war, he was an officer in the Alpini, so people overlooked his domestic situation. But in 1919, he died of Spanish influenza while visiting his family in Turin. They buried him there and even refused to let Miss Winterley go to the funeral. How terribly sad. Why didn't she go back to England? He didn't say, 
Perhaps her family weren't too happy about it either. The next day, the sun came out. Miss Winterley became my friend, and my real education began. Over the following months, she taught me to speak Italian, shop and cook. And then there was the art. I'd grown up in the English countryside with dogs and ponies. I'd never had any interest. But Miss Winterly made every church, palace and gallery in Venice exciting. She told funny stories to Davy and showed us how you could see the same little dogs trotting around the Rialto that Tintoretto had painted 400 years before. Once a week, she went to Venice by herself. Business, she would say, with no further explanation. But one wet Saturday afternoon in October, she asked if I would come with her alone. So Davy stayed at home with Reginald, and we set off. Where are we going? I asked. San Michele, she answered. The cemetery. I'm sure you know the story, she said after a while, about how I came to live in the Villa Tesoro. But what few people know is that I also had a little boy, George, who was born a year before Gianni died. Oh, that's why I stayed in Italy. I hope that if I gave Gianni's family time, they would accept his son. But George caught diphtheria and died when he was about Davy's age. I felt her voice start to shake, so I took her hand and pressed it. Well then, I had to stay and look after his grave, she finished. We changed boats at Fondamente Nove, and I got some flowers, white chrysanthemums, before we continued the short journey across the water. San Michele was different from the English graveyards I knew. Every grave or plaque had been recently cleaned and polished by relatives living across the other side of the water. Most of them had fresh flowers and a photograph of the dead person on it, so it felt like we had a silent audience watching us. There didn't seem to be any other visitors there that day. The rain rolled down the umbrella we shared as we walked to the far side of the island. Finally, we stopped before a small grave with a picture of a little boy in a sailor suit staring solemnly up at us. Miss Winterly bent down to remove a few dead leaves from the marble and I placed my flowers in the vase next to the photograph. Then I put my arms around Miss Winterly and wept. I'm so sorry, I said. He looked so very sad. 
and lonely. I didn't want to upset you, she said. But it was my last chance to show you George. You see, I have to give up his grave. Normally, it was only possible to have a place in San Michele for twelve years, she explained. She had already had one twelve-year extension, and the authorities said she couldn't have another. But is there nothing we can do? I asked. Miss Winterly shook her head. I've tried everything. The only possibility would be if another family member was buried here. Then they could be put together. We stood staring at the grave for a while. Then Miss Winterly looked at her wristwatch. You should go to catch the vaporetto back, or you'll be very late. If you don't mind, I want to stay here a little longer. Say my goodbyes. Give Davy a kiss from me. Travelling back to the Lido, the rain started falling heavily, and large waves rocked the boat. I was relieved to be home, where, to Davy and Reginald's astonishment, I burst into tears and went straight to bed. I was woken late next morning by Reginald. Darling, he said, something terrible has happened to Miss Winterly. She had taken the last vaporetto back from San Michele as a thunderstorm rolled across the water. The boatman had seen her standing alone at the stern, looking back at San Michele. When they reached Fondamenta Nova, she was gone. A fisherman found her body this morning. A, a wave must have knocked her over the side. I organised the funeral with help from the consul. As Miss Winterly had said, there wasn't any difficulty from the authorities about burying her with George. I ordered all three names to be carved on a new stone, together with a different portrait photograph that I found. When I went to the Villa Tesoro, it was lying on the dining room table, as if it had been placed there for me to find. At the back stood Janny, dressed in his uniform and looking handsome, but very serious. And at the front sat Miss Winterly, baby George in her arms, both smiling. Smiling out of the picture, at me. I hope you enjoyed today's stories. Remember, you can get the complete text of these stories if you go to my website www.behindthebottomline.com. 
And I'd be really interested to know what you think of these stories with added sound effects. Um, doing this is something new for me. It's a little bit of an experiment. So please let me know what you think of them on my website, behindthebottomline.com. And if you do so, I will send you a free copy of my holiday thriller, Peril in Venice. Now, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be writing some new short stories for a magazine. But Behind the Bottom Line will be back at the end of September for season eight. And as I said, tell me what you think about the sound effects on the stories so that I can then decide whether or not to include them in season eight. So until then, I hope you have a nice, relaxing summer holidays. Take care and goodbye.